Thank you. So, enterprise risk management. Not on the surface of it the most interesting of topics. In fact, if you go back through human history, you'll find that risk management, in some form or another, has been practiced pretty much since the dawn of civilization. Take Yaku and Sipo up there, two prehistoric humans who are grappling with an existential problem. It's a really cold night, circa 4,000 years BC, and you can imagine them huddled together, trying to figure out solutions to the latest problem. The threat that they face? Tigers. The tiger population has increased exponentially, putting their village at risk. First, they quantify this risk. At a rate of three children being lost each and every day, in just a short month, the village will no longer be viable. Next, they brainstorm ideas, ways they can manage and mitigate the risk. And then, a spark of brilliance, fire. An invention that will disrupt and change civilization as they knew it. Fire could help them chase away animals, keep them warm on cold nights like this, and help them cook food. Problem solved. But as humanity would later find out, the use of fire doesn't come without its own risks. In fact, many of the first insurance companies in the 1600s were formed precisely to mitigate against the risks that fire posed to cities like London and Boston. 300 years later, risk management would be formalized as a discipline, and the points they come, came up with would be very familiar to Yaku and Sipo all of those years before. First, you identify your risk. Next, you measure it, you quantify it. Then you find ways to manage and mitigate that risk, and after that, you monitor what you put in place. So as you can see, the history of risk management is very much intertwined with the history of humanity itself. And as we stand at the crossroads trying to figure out the impact that things like blockchain and machine learning and cyber risks will have on enterprise risk management, it might make sense to take some lessons from the past. So in this session, we would like to take you on a journey both forward and backwards through time to figure out what enterprise risk management will look like in this age of fintech. So, so risk management was relatively simple back then, but I think things are definitely getting a bit more complex. I mean, what do we mean by complex? I recently read a fairly interesting article that draws some differences between something that is complex and something that is complicated. These two concepts are used often interchangeably, but apparently there might be some differences. So the author describes a complex system as one which has a lot of different moving parts to it, all interacting in various different ways. It also has a multitude of different players with various expertise, and the system requires constant adaptation. Whereas a complicated system it has some sort of structured execution. Complicated system, there is quite a lot of difficulty, so you need expertise, but everything pretty much hinges on planning. As long as your planning is good, then everything should run fairly smoothly. Now, maybe I'm a little bit slow, but I still couldn't quite figure out what complicated would be versus what complex would be. And thankfully, the author has given us some good examples. A good example of something complicated would be this. Sending a rocket into space is incredibly complicated because, well, it's very difficult to do, and it requires such precise planning and execution. A good example of something complex might be this. 
We have a situation where we have a parent who is trying to get a child to potty train. Now, this situation is incredibly complex because it's really difficult to predict the patterns relating to the child's eating, pattern, uh, eating patterns, sleeping patterns, pooping patterns, and so, so on. And apparently, there's no amount of planning in the world that can account for all of this. You're always going to wind up with a situation that looks something like that. So all of your moving parts. But getting back to why we're talking about these two different kinds of systems. If a complicated system is one which is really difficult and requires some planning and execution, then ERM is somewhat complicated. But I think more than this, I mean, if your complex system has a lot of moving parts to it, then ERM is incredibly complex. Because we know, compared to the early days of risk management, our business environment, our external environment, and even ERM literature are becoming increasingly more complex. So let's look at some of this complexity. So Aon has recently done a survey, and the survey covered over 2,000 responses from various organizations, various industries, and across certain geographies. And this survey showed that the top risks to businesses have been evolving over the past decade. So you have your usual suspects like your damage to brand and reputation, your failure to attract and retain risk, sorry, talent, and the ever so annoying regulatory change risk. Now these risks have been dominating the top 10 for the past decade or so, and it looks like they will continue to dominate well into 2020. So what has been changing? Back in 2007, we might have been more concerned about things like your failure of your disaster recovery plan or market risk, and rightfully so. I mean, we haven't forgotten about these risk types, of course. We've just deprioritized them because the complexity in ERM means that we have to adapt to new and changing risk types. And looking forward to 2020, we see that new priorities will be things like disruptive technologies, cybercrime, and the failure to innovate. And that brings me to innovation and disruption. Now, I actually want to share a small little anecdote with you, and it's possibly even a joke. It's definitely not true. Um, okay, maybe it's somewhat true. But it's about the space race between the Russians and the Americans. I mean, you might know the story about the pen. Um, so it turns out that a regular pen doesn't quite work well in a zero-gravity environment. And this might be a problem because astronauts also need to write things. To combat this problem, it is rumored that NASA, they spent over a decade and close to $12 billion trying to develop a pen that could write in space. On the other hand, we have the Russians. Now, the Russians, they either couldn't care as much or the, they were perhaps a little bit smarter because they just decided to use a pencil. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves, this story has a very good moral for us because we need to ask ourselves, is this complex situation always needed to be matched with a complex solution? I mean, when is some of this innovation even really necessary? And I think the bigger question we need to ask ourselves is, is this complex situation that we're faced with all that new? Because if you think about it, some of these marketing agencies, they have a really good expertise and value add in what they do, because they have this ability to take something old and repackage it into something cutting edge and new for us today. I mean, a silly example might be those days when apps, they were just programs. There was nothing sexy about them. We just had a bunch of code, and we slap on an icon to it, and we had a program. 
And today we have all of these fancy apps on all of these different devices, but fundamentally they're still just programs. And another silly example, bear with me, it's just to demonstrate a point, is the remote control helicopter. I mean, you probably had it all of one day before you either flew it into the pool or your dogs got a hold of it. Um, but today we're calling those things drones. And back when we didn't have FinTech, we just had technology. Technology that happened to be applied in financial institutions. So the ATM is probably still one of our best disruptive innovations because it finally allowed us the ability to get a hold of our money without really having to talk to a human being. I mean, obviously simplifying it, but you get the point. And the first ATM was launched as far back as the 1960s. So what we're trying to say is that innovation and disruption, they might have different lexicons and the nature of it might be changing. But is it really new to us? Is the concept of innovation and disruption all that new in our lives today? And maybe they're not. And if they're not, then maybe we can look to our past for some good advice on how we have dealt with some of this change before. So, a quote that is often attributed to Einstein says that if you can't explain a concept to a six-year-old, then you probably don't really understand that concept well enough yourself. To me, enterprise risk management is simply a framework that prevents companies from going bankrupt. It scans the horizon looking for threats and risks, and it finds ways to manage and mitigate those threats and risks. A simple enterprise risk framework could look something like this. At its heart, you have your core risks. These are the risks that you actively seek as a business, the risks that you make profit of, things like mortality risks. Surrounding that, you have your business risks, your outside-in, top-down risks, such as the risk of disruption and the risk of poor management choices. And then overarching all of that, it's your risk culture, the organization's stance towards dealing with change and towards dealing with uncertainty. Now, if you take this relatively simple ERM framework and you marry it up with the points that they came up in the 60s, simple points around first identifying the risk and then measuring it, managing it, mitigating it, and then monitor it, you could be forgiven for asking what has really changed. What has changed since the 60s? What has changed since the time of Yaku and Sipo? Are we too guilty about thinking about the two Cs, complexity and complication? And maybe we're failing to see the bigger picture. The question then is what is the bigger picture? Well, maybe a couple of examples will help with this. First example comes from the UK motor insurance industry. Behind me on the graph you see is a view of underwriting profits for the industry as a whole. Overlaid on the graph are a series of events, disruptors or innovations that impacted the industry. In the 1960s, the industry was pretty much run as a cartel. There were a few big players who set the prices. In the mid to late 1960s, several companies broke away from that cartel and several new entrants joined the industry. What resulted was a price war. In the bid to gain market share and to grow, companies undercut the pricing, premiums fell, and underwriting profits fell. This accumulated in 1971 in the failure of vehicle in general, the largest insurer in the market. Now, at least for this very limited time span in this particular industry, it could be argued that disruption and innovation, when it leads to increased competition, can be bad for everyone as a whole. However, the underlying story here is really 
pricing got disconnected from underlying risk fundamentals. In the 1980s, we see something very similar. This time, the technology was broker quote screens. This allowed brokers to easily compare prices across various insurance companies. In addition, the industry saw the introduction of telecells, brought to you by men and women in call centers across the world. Once again, this innovation and disruption led to increased competition. Again, we saw price war and premiums fell, underwriting profits went through the floor, and there was a failure of several insurance companies. In the 2000s, a very similar story. This time, the technology was the internet. It democratized insurance, allowing you and me, as opposed to brokers, to compare quotes and benefits across various insurance companies. In addition, several new companies popped up trying to take advantage of the internet as a platform. Once again, this led to a price war. Premiums went down, and the writing profits for the industry as a whole went through the floor. And again, we saw the failure of certain insurance companies. Now, over this time span, from 1960 to 2000, in this particular industry, again, it could be argued that when innovation and disruption leads to increased competition, then you're likely to see increased rate of failures. However, the overarching theme here, the underlying message, is really that in the face of disruption and innovation, companies should not forget about their core risks. They need to keep an eye on the fundamentals. The next example is more bad news. It seems that insurance companies tell, tend to fail most often when they expand rapidly into areas that they do not understand. And often, this rapid expansion is as a result of disruption. However, another recent study showed that the threat of disruption is often overstated. In fact, most companies have sufficient time and sufficient options to respond to disruption. Over the past 50 years, the rate of disruption hasn't really increased. And the companies that failed when they are disrupted, well, a lot of them had serious underlying flaws in their business model. The other companies that failed looked something like this. Management pushed them in many directions at once. They became bloated, they lacked a core focus, and they were vulnerable to the tiniest of pinpricks. When management took time to take a step back, analyze internal strengths and weaknesses, peer that up to the technology, peer that up to customer demands, then those companies were more likely to succeed. Sometimes it is better to be the second fastest mover than to be the initial guinea pig. Let's go back to the 2000s, a time of companies such as Pets.com and Go.com and Webvan. It was the era of the internet. And many companies popped up to take advantage of that. Money flowed into the market and people were generally optimistic. Now we all know how that ended in the dot-com crash. Basically, it seems as humanity, we tend to significantly overestimate the short-term impact that a new technology will have. And equally significantly, we tend to underestimate the longer-term impact. The internet went on to become what everyone thought it would become. But it was the companies that took the time to understand the platform that succeeded. The last lesson are two relatively famous individuals. The first, I'm sure a lot of you would recognize. That is Elizabeth Holmes. And in 2003, at the age of 19, she founded Tyrannos. The stated goal of Tyrannos was to democratize healthcare. 
She invented a machine that could perform blood tests based on drops of blood extracted from a prick of a finger. This is as compared to current technology, which uses entire vials of blood, sometimes extracted painfully from patients. After a meteoric rise in 2015, Tyrannos was valued at $9 billion, and Forbes had crowned Elizabeth Holmes America's youngest self-made billionaire. By January 2016, the cracks began to show. Apparently, the technology actually didn't work, and in fact, she relied on testing machines from competitors so as to conduct her blood tests. As we stand now in 2018, Tehranus no longer exists as a corporate entity, and Elizabeth Holmes and the COO are both facing charges of fraud. Now, there are many lessons we can learn from this, from a spectacular failure in corporate governance to just general market hubris. But at the heart of the story are people, people with a pre-existing narrative. They used technology to further that narrative and ignored any and all warning signs that popped up along the way. They founded, in her case, an organization that lacked openness, the organization lacked transparency, it lacked inquisitiveness, and it lacked basic validation. In other words, what we saw with Tehranos is a simple failure of risk culture. The second guy, many of you might not recognize that, is Dr. Savundra. And he had an idea in the 60s that was, call it revolutionary, call it ahead of its time. He thought he could apply computing technology to insurance companies to make them more efficient at risk assessment and make them better. So he founded a company, Fire and Auto Marine Insurance, and partnered with a relatively large computer manufacturer of the day. And together they built and implemented the system. The problem? The system didn't quite work. It consistently underpriced risk. However, this fed into Dr. Savundra's pre-existing narrative. He thought to himself, if the system is working, my company must be more efficient, and therefore my risk assessments must be better, and it only makes sense that my pricing is lower than the market. It also helped that his low premiums assisted him in undercutting his opposition and growing his company rapidly. Fire and Auto Marine Insurance was founded in 1963. Five years later, in 1968, the company had gone bankrupt, and Dr. Savundra had been convicted of fraud. In both of these examples, the example of Elizabeth Holmes with Terranos and the example of Fire and Auto Marine Insurance, if they had both implemented a robust risk culture, a culture of openness and validation, they would have been better placed to pioneer and implement these new technologies. And if they had failed, well, they would have failed earlier and maybe avoided jail time. Take two. Yeah? Is this working? Much better? Yay, we go. So I like this definition of insanity that says you do the same thing repeatedly, but you expect a different outcome. I mean, we've just learned three good lessons from the past, courtesy of OPE. One, stick to your fundamentals. Two, try to understand your business risks. And three, never ignore the importance of culture. So rather than repeating the mistakes of the past and expecting a different outcome, let's see how we can apply them in our future so that we can promote a more desirable outcome for ourselves. And we're starting with our core risks. 
So guys, I'm not going to lecture you on the chorus to the business. I mean, you all sitting here like me, we've studied for years trying to figure this stuff out. Some of us literally through blood, sweat and tears. So I'm not even going to try and improve on that for, for today. I'm pretty sure with all our professional de development and all our experience, we've got this, right? <laughs> However, in the allure of fintech, I think we must remember lesson number one. Let's not lose sight of this especially as we move into this fintech world, and especially as we start to hear the callings of innovation become all that much louder. Speaking of the callings of innovation, sometimes it feels like this. It is definitely a threat, isn't it? I mean, we know some of our biggest risks is that we're not being innovative. And that's fair, and that's fair to the extent that everyone else is actually innovating, because you shouldn't be falling behind the market. But I think what is perhaps a little bit troubling is that we've all thought or all think that fintech is now the miracle answer to all our innovation prayers. And as long as we keep up with the latest trends in fintech, then everything should be fine. And so now we're all merrily embarking on these fintech journeys of ours, perhaps losing sight of our surroundings. Because if you just zoom out a little bit, you might start to see that things aren't as rosy as they appeared. In fact, things might be getting a bit too dangerously hot. So not being innovative is a bit of a problem, but it seems like being silly and aggressive towards innovation is also a bit of a problem. I mean, the answer might be to try and strike that elusive balance in maintaining the right pace with innovation. Because we know that our customers are forcing us to become innovative, and they want us to become more efficient more customer-centric and less expensive. So we have to do that. So some of the biggest enablers of innovation for insurance companies might be these, machine learning, AI, big data, and blockchain technology. But these enablers could also be some of the biggest sources of business risks. I mean, we can call them fintech business risks, if you like. And now I think it's time for us to get a bit closer to some of the aspects of innovation and identify some tips on how to prevent our situation from getting, as I said before, dangerously hot. So, machine learning. Machine learning is pretty much everywhere nowadays. Facebook uses machine learning to tag images. Apple uses machine learning to, ident to identify objects in the photographs that you take. PayPal uses machine learning to validate transactions and to prevent fraud. Google uses machine learning well for pretty much everything. And sometimes it is said that implementing machine learning is really easy. You just need four steps. And the benefits of machine learning are clear. Those four steps, number one, you need to understand the machine learning process. Number two, you need to understand the algorithms. What's out there? What can they be used for? What can they be applied to? Number three, you need data big data, and I'll come back to that later. And four, patience. Patience to understand the algorithms, patience to let the machine, well, do some thinking. But that's where the complexity starts. Behind me is a snapshot, a sample of all the possible algorithms out there. Where do you start? Which algorithm do you actually choose? And once you've chosen something and implemented it, how do you know that it is actually working? And importantly, what are the hidden risks? Well, Amazon recently had a problem. They were receiving way too many job applications for the postings, and this put their HR department under strain. 
Amazon being Amazon, decided that they were going to leverage technology to solve this problem. So they built a machine learning algorithm, an artificial intelligence that could sift through all of the applications and just recommend the top two or three to be put through for an interview. They implemented this algorithm, and after a couple of months, the hiring managers noticed something very strange. It seems like pretty much everyone which made it through the screening were male applicants. And under further investigation, they found that the algorithm was actually actively screening out all women's CVs. It would do some very sneaky things, like it would look through your CV and see that, ah, she put here that she's part of an all-women's polo club. She must be a woman, CV goes to the trash heap. Or it will see that you attended an all-women's high school like St. Teresa's or all-women's college. Well, your CV goes to the trash heap. Now, what the algorithm was doing was actually not surprising. Based on the data that had been fed into it, the probability of a man being hired at Amazon was far higher than the probability of a woman. And so, as an initial step, it screened out all the women applicants. Well, it seemed that the algorithm in this case had not just inherited, it had actually perfected our pre-existing human biases. Now, Amazon no longer uses this technology. They've moved away from artificial intelligence back to good old human intelligence. But there are other ways in which machine learning can have unintended consequences. Approximately five years ago, I got myself an Xbox with a camera. And I always wondered why it took so long for the camera to pick me up. I would have to dance in front of the camera for several minutes before it recognized my face, while certain of my friends would just walk into the room, sit down on the couch, and instantly the camera picked them up. Well, studies have shown that most facial recognition technology has been calibrated on a data set with people, well, of a certain race. And therefore, the logical result is when the camera now looks at me, it struggles to pick me up. Now, the lesson here is really around the importance of validation when it comes to technologies such as this. And it's not just the old quantitative validation we're used to. It really comes down to some good old human common sense that could protect organizations from things like model risk and, very importantly, from reputational damage. So, big data. A couple of minutes ago, I said I'll come back to this. I have always wondered, and forgive me for this somewhat lame joke, I have always wondered, when does small data become big data? Is there a legal driving age for data? If data... <laughs> if data hits 18 gigabytes, can it get up, walk out the door, slam the door, go to a bar, order tequila and a whiskey? Um, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer. But the European Commission defines big data as data consisting of three Vs, volume, velocity, and variety, lots and lots and lots of data across multiple fields, across multiple spans of time. But is big data always good data? Well, it can be if it is clean, if it is stored appropriately, if it can be accessed in the appropriate manner, and if you apply the right technology to it. But in most of our organizations, our big data actually looks something like this. Piles and piles and piles of information collected from multiple systems year after year after year. Think about your organizations. The system X actually talked to system Y. 
Do you have adequate metadata for all of the fields in your data warehouse? And elusively, do you have a single view of the client? Most people don't. Now, in a banking sense, lots of projects, millions of dollars of spend, and multi-year projects have been launched trying to address BCBS 239. Now, BCBS 239 is a very simple Basel standard aimed at risk data aggregation and reporting. It has some, what you would think of, fairly common sense principles. And yet hundreds, even thousands of projects over hundreds of institutions are doing things like, well, mapping data lineages and making sure that metric A in this report is the same as and calculated in exactly the same way as metric, the same metric A in that report. So from an enterprise risk management standpoint, especially when it comes to big data, maybe the problem is not yet looking forward. Maybe the problem is really looking inwards and downwards and trying to sort out the data that we currently have. So the other innovative animal is called blockchain. Now, blockchain technology is expanding really, really fast. And it actually seems like everyone just wants to have a blockchain, but I don't think everyone should actually get a blockchain. So last year at this conference, one of my colleagues actually did a talk on blockchain technology. Not this one, by the way. Um, so this is one of his slides. And he started out his talk by asking two simple questions. And the first one was, how many of you in the audience actually think your organization could really benefit from using blockchain technology? And a lot of people raised their hands. And then he immediately followed with another question, asking how many people in the audience thought they really needed to understand more about blockchain technology and learn more about it? And again, a lot of people raised their hands. But what is interesting and perhaps a little bit funny is that a lot of people raised their hands twice. So they didn't fully understand what blockchain technology was, and yet they thought, yep, it's a great idea, let's put it into our organization. So lesson number two from the past taught us to at least understand our business risks. Let's try not to introduce something unnecessary into the system, because not all tech can be useful for us. And actually, he's got a really good article, it's linked in here, um, to show you when blockchain technology can be really useful. And then you can fully understand, you know, what are the risks that are associated with it. And the last thing that we want to talk about today in relation to the fintech business risks, I mean, this one actually sits in your OR world, but it's quite important. So I want to start with looking at you in the audience. I mean, if you have your mobile phone and you use it for your work emails, just have a quick look at what your organization might be doing in terms of cyber risk management for those devices. So some of them are locking down their work stuff in a specific ecosystem. So for example, if you're using Outlook for your emails, you might find that everything is contained then within a Microsoft eco ecosystem. So you'll need to download those individual apps to use your documents. So your web access, your email access, and your document access are all locked down. You won't even be allowed to copy the text out of that ecosystem into another one. And that's what they're doing, because they seem to trust the Microsoft ecosystem. In other instances, you might find that you're forced to change your password on your phone a lot. I mean, but too often, to the extent that it can be quite annoying. But there's a good reason for this. I think with all of this big fintech drive and the push to go digital and get everything on the interweb, um, cyber risk is becoming quite huge. Uh, South Africa ranks really high on the list of users that give their 
internet, sorry, lots of countries that give their internet users the highest amount of freedom. But they also rank really high on the list of countries which are most vulnerable to cyber attacks. So this is becoming quite a problem for us. And we've also had some recent victims. So I mean, if you think about Sterkinikor and Facebook, the Deeds Office, and there's an insurance company that we shall not name. So what can we do to manage cyber risk? So the Bank for International Settlements has released a paper on cybersecurity frameworks. And part of their suggestion is for banks to conduct vulnerability and resilience testing for their information security systems. And what this actually means is that banks should come up with manual and automated techniques to try and simulate cyber attacks for their systems. Now, we know there's a lot of banks out there who are currently doing this without there being a specific regulatory requirement for it. And in South Africa, we know there are a lot of banks who are also doing this sort of testing. So they hire hackers to try to gain access to the information security systems. And they're also looking into dark web activities to try and preempt a potential threat. And all of this is great for trying to predict information security breaches. But I still feel like there might be something missing. What about this guy? I mean, we are living in an Uber Eats world, and we have these delivery guys over all the time. When he was there last time in our organization, was he really there just to deliver his pizza? Or did he maybe snatch an access card or steal a memory stick of information? And this is actually going back to fundamentals of risk management, because banks are also looking into how easy is it for someone to physically gain access to their building to be able to have some issues with cybersecurity. Um, I think for my personal security as well, I would appreciate that they check on this either way. So another scarier statistic would possibly be the, the human error involvement. It turns out that a majority of cyber incidents are related to human error. It is us silly humans. We're clicking on those phishing email links. We're visiting those websites we're not supposed to be visiting. And we're inadvertently enabling viruses perhaps because we are a bit too trigger-happy with our mouse sometimes. So we're quite a threat ourselves. So employers might want to consider just upping their game on training. Um, employees will really benefit from understanding what are the threats they're facing in today's technological workplace. How do I identify a specific threat, a cyber-related threat? And when you do identify one, what actually do you do about it? Now, this sort of training will help hopefully, reduce the number of incidents that you have, and also try to increase the response time to threats when they do occur. Now, cyber risk for insurers is twofold. Um, you have to do what other institutions are doing so that you can protect yourself from cyber threats, but you're also becoming increasingly capable in underwriting cyber risks. And that too comes with its own challenges, but I think overall, there's some good opportunity here in light of some of the scary change. So, we've talked, we've talked a little, sorry, can you hear me? Okay. So, we've talked a little about core risks, if you think about the very simple enterprise risk management framework. We've touched on business risks and fintech risks. What about risk culture? Well, risk culture is an organization's stance, their attitude towards dealing with change and towards dealing with uncertainty. It tends to be a very dynamic framework that involves both formal and informal components. However, risk culture can still be viewed through a traditional risk management lens, 
organizations should have a clear vision for where they want their risk culture should do, go, and they need to put into place measures and monitoring capabilities to ensure that the organizational risk culture doesn't drift too far from their target risk culture. An organization can have the best models, it can have the best tools, systems, functions targeted at risk management, but if its risk culture is not aligned to the overall corporate strategy, then those tools, models, systems, and functions are likely to fail. So, how do you instill a great risk culture? Well, a recent survey of CROs from the insurance industry indicated that a good risk culture often starts with the tone from the top. In other words, senior management and executives needed to live the values that they espoused. If we think back to the examples of Elizabeth Holmes and Dr. Savundra, if the tone from the top is poor, you're likely to see a failure in risk culture across the entire organization. Once the tone from the top is there, however, then you can add incentives, structures, and operational capabilities to bolster your risk culture. It is worth noting, though, that a good risk culture is not necessarily a restrictive risk culture. Human beings make mistakes, and they need to be encouraged to own up to those mistakes so that they can learn from the mistakes and so that the entire organizations can also learn from the mistakes that they make. In fact, studies have found that organizations that rank higher on metrics like openness and transparency also rank higher on metrics like innovation and on general profitability. Instilling a risk culture in an existing organization, though, can be very challenging. While the tone from the top is important, people at all levels of the organization need to buy into the journey. No one really wants to be like poor Dilbert over there, who sends up an idea, gets it tweaked, and has it shoved right back down their throats. People kind of want to be taken along for the journey. They want to understand the benefits that the change will have for them. And once they understand the benefits, then they're more likely to participate constructively in the change in overall risk culture. Now, a robust risk culture can have many benefits, including better operational risk outcomes, greater efficiency, and better profitability. However, in the age of fintech, a robust risk culture enables companies not just to handle the known risks, so the stuff that's on the horizon like blockchain and machine learning and cyber risks. A robust risk culture enables companies to handle the black swan events, the unknown unknowns where there's no existing recipe for change. So we've gone on an ERM journey today. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> we've gone back in time to the days of Yako and Sifo, and we learned about their ingenious risk management techniques of fire. We move forward in time a little bit where we learned some great lessons in risk management, courtesy of the UK insurance market and that epic failure of Elizabeth Holmes. But through all of this, we realized that the ERM frameworks we've used back then is actually consistent with the ERM frameworks that we have now. And we think it might remain relevant despite all the complexity, even as we move into this world of fintech and innovation. So as Mark Twain says, History does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. We've learned some great lessons from the past, and we know it can be useful for our present and our future. We've talked a lot about a lot of things today, and everything has just led us to believe that ERM for fintech and innovation is really not something far-fetched and brand new. 
It could really just be your business as usual. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the presenters. Um, like I said, we, we're running slightly late, so we have about 10 minutes of questioning time, if ever there are questions. Uh, some microphones should be moving around, so you raise up your hand and uh, uh, a mic comes and you can ask your question. Do I see any hand up? Wow. Um, it, it means it was very interesting then. <laughs> oh, yeah, there, there is a hand up there. Um, Great presentation, guys. Um, I just have one question, more like a thought for like maybe you guys can help me just understand. So most of those risk disruptions are from new startup fintechs, which the technology brings and gives them the edge. And for like a big company, existing established insurers, often they couldn't compete on the same level because of the legacy system and all the, all the infrastructure already invested. So in terms of managing risk in that way of competing with the startups, how, how the existing company do that? So there are a couple of things, I guess, and we touched on some of the things in the presentation. I guess the one thing is that existing companies shouldn't forget about the core risk. So if you look at failures, both in insurance companies and even in banks, companies tend to fail not because a disruptive startup has entered the market. Look at the bright banking crisis of 2008. What actually happened was that banks forgot that their primary function was a liquidity transformation function. They forgot about liquidity risks, and that eventually led to the crash. Um, in terms of actually competing, what several organizations do, though, is they then segment out the technology that they want to look, for, look at. So let's say it's Bitcoin, um, or let's say it's machine learning. And they start a startup within, but separate from the organization. And generally, those startups can then take a couple of risks, um, can be a bit innovative without actually impacting the focus of the actual organizations that they come from. So that's one way that an organization can deal with competing against and actually learning to understand a couple of these new technologies before they implement it on old systems and archaic systems. And they can do that while they're sorting out BCBS 239 and stuff like that. Any other question? Um, right, so if there are no more questions, can we again thank our speakers?